I invite you to stand now for the reading of the word, please. This is our long tradition to stand when we read today. We read from the Gospel of John, John chapter 15, five verses today. This is the New Revised Standard Version. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You've already been cleansed by the word that I've spoken to you, so abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, disciples, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. The word of God. You can be seated. Jesus has just finished a meal with the disciples where he had a drink from the fruit of the vine. He tells the disciples, I won't drink of this cup again until you see me in the kingdom made new. And then I imagine a pause and an intentional pause as Jesus thinks and leans forward. Hmm. Speaking of fruit and vines and juice, I'm the vine, and God, my Father, is the vine grower. Jesus will go on now to talk and talk and talk and layer things on top of this teaching. It's three more chapters of Jesus talking. Next, he'll say, I command you to love one another, and in the world there will be a lot of hate, and I give you my peace, and I have so much more to say to you, and you can't handle it, Jesus says in these chapters here. There is so much more, but the Spirit will come after me. I'm the true vine, the Father is the vine grower. This is a familiar saying. If you grew up with a Bible in your hand like I have today, you know this saying and you know it as it's the ending or the conclusion of the seven I am sayings in the Bible. These are descriptions for us of who God is and what God is like. In the Gospel of John, we read all seven of them, and then Jesus speaks a little about each metaphor. I am the bread of life, which means um, I'm the one that sustains you and feeds you. I'm the light of the world. I'll shine in dark places. I'm the door, the entrance in. I am the good shepherd, the, the guardian, your caretaker. I'm the resurrection and the life, the overcomer of death. I'm the way, I'm the path you'll travel. And today, I'm the vine, the source of growth. Maybe you've read all of these together, studied them together, read a book on them, heard a sermon series. We're only on the last one today. I am the vine as the source of our growth and, and the way we progress and move forward. The vine is an illustration from the country, not the suburbs, because uh, the people here, that's what they would know. The vine is also familiar from their history. The people would know the nation of Israel. These disciples are from the nation of Israel. And Israel is called a vineyard in the Old Testament. Jesus looks at a group of young generation and connects their story to those who have come before them. All in one metaphor. I am the vine, you are the branches. And my father is the vine grower or the vine dresser. The verse continues. The vine grower removes every branch in me that bears no fruit and every branch, and he prunes every fruit to make it bear more fruit. So we should expect to grow, we should expect to change, Jesus tells us, we should expect to move through seasons and cycles in our life, friends. 
Now, I have two plant stories in my life. You've got some, too. I think this summer, Pastor Devo gave us a plant story, a garden story. Do I remember correct? This is my problem. I have my two plant stories in my life. Here's story number one. I gathered my plants up at home because they died. Did you know, actually, that when you take your plants back to Lowe's, they will give you a refund on your dead plants for up to one year? Did you know that? Did you not know? Well, aren't you glad you came to church? (laughs) You'll learn things in church. So you can take your dead plants back to the nursery. So, because I go to Lowe's at 6 a.m. when no one else is there, I went on a Sunday morning at 6 a.m. and put my plants on the counter in front of the nice lady and said, no judgment, please. She said, it's okay. We're going to give you a refund. I said, so does it matter how they died? She said, it's okay. We're going to give you a refund. I said, but I feel like you're judging me a little bit right now. She said, we're going to give you a refund. And I just couldn't stop, so I said, but I gathered all the plants up around the house and I put them all by the front door because we're getting the house fumigated and I know all the plants have to go outside. And I did all of this and we left the house and locked the door and came back a week later. (sighs) We killed our plants. She said, it's okay, we're gonna give you a refund. I have dead plants and this is me trying hard to take good care of them, right? All right, I don't know what the plants look like in your house, no judgment. I'm gonna go with the lady at Lowe's. Here's a second plant story that's just happened these months. We have two, three citrus trees in our yard. I was a little confused when the citrus, the oranges started to grow or take shape on the tree several months ago. We were still picking and eating and juicing oranges and so I sent a picture of our orange trees to Bart Vaughn. Bart is our our, uh, landscape architect here at the church and he is all things plants. I said, Bart, I'm a little concerned. I got all this green fruit on my tree. It's like, it's like May, June. I didn't know you could have it. Sent him two pictures. Here's the next picture. Like back in the back there, we're still picking fruit and the new fruit is growing. Is that supposed to happen? Because these true trees, they just produce year round, year round, year round. And I'm, it's kind of weird. And he said to me, those are beautiful trees. To which I did not say, We've been having a conversation at home. We really need to take care of our citrus trees. We do not water them. We do not feed them. We have not pruned them, right? For several years, don't, oh, I'm getting a look right now. Like, come on, don't bring up the citrus in church. We keep saying we got to prune these things. We need to take better care of them. And then Bart, our landscape architect, says, you have the most amazing citrus. And we did nothing. We actually neglected them, friends. So whatever your plant stories are in your life this morning, as you hear a metaphor from Scripture, it's probably good to set them aside. Because that is probably the beginning and the ending of the relationship to what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. It's a metaphor. And so we don't press it too hard. Right? We learn what we can from it, we touch down on it, and we keep moving. There is intentional work by the gardener There are seasons that the gardener will go through. There is a dormant season and there's a lively season. In the spring, the pruning will look like one thing. In in the winter, the fall and winter, when things are dormant, the pruning will look different. There'll be more aggressive pruning after the harvest. But this is not an illustration about judgment and salvation and hell. Can we just say this? Okay? It's a metaphor. Don't press it too hard. 
Don't turn it into, oh, God's going to prune away some of us and we won't be fit for heaven. Oh, God's going to burn a few others of us because we didn't produce correctly. That's to press a metaphor too hard. And that's not what it's for in the Bible. This is God's vineyard. Vines are safe in God's vineyard. Yes, that was the amen moment. Vines are safe in God's vineyard. Get that clear when Jesus tells these stories. It would be nice if Jesus could give us a concise list so we would know about our growth. We like to know what stage we are in. A lot of us like to know, am I making progress? How is it going? It would be great if Jesus would simply give us a list. You will pray. You'll pray. And, and, and you'll do acts of service. And you'll participate in the life of a congregation. And you will, you know, pay, pay your offerings and become vegan and sing out of the hymnal or whatever would be on the list. Jesus doesn't give us a list. This is why some people join other faith traditions, by the way. Because if I want to be a Muslim, I, I know I only have to do five things. Profess my faith, pray, give alms, fast, and do a pilgrimage. And I know I've done it well. Jesus gives us instead this metaphor. All summer we spent time in the book of Acts where the Spirit was pulling the new disciples of Jesus into situations that were, that were uh, overwhelming and frightening and dividing and disarming over and over all the way through the book of Acts. And Jesus told the disciples it would be this way. I am leaving. I'll send you the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. And that Spirit kept pulling the disciples into new spaces of growth. And it terrified them. People move through life and then life moves through people. Someone wise has said this. I, I would like to give them credit. People move through life, and then life moves through people. So to be truthful about our growth, and if we're progressive or not, to be truthful about this, we have to be truthful about our own journey with God and with Jesus. We have to be willing to tell the truth about our own stories with God. How are we responding to God? How are we reacting? How are we ignoring? How are we burying our issues and our conversations? We do all of this with the complexity of our relationships and our homes and the country of origin, friends. To progress, last week we said, to progress, the verb. We like to talk of ourselves around here as progressive Christians. To progress, the verb means to move forward to advance, to develop, to mature, to grow, to move along, to progress. So it's not a neat and predictable process. I can't tell you this is where we are this month and this is where we'll be three months from now because it's not like this. And I can't tell you that this is some kind of isolated spiritual care program because we live as whole persons in this world. We're not just attending to our spirituality. We're attending to all of us. When we talk about progressive faith, our theologians on campus help us. I had a great and lively conversation with Dr. Webster this week, John Webster, and he says, well, the problem is when we say we're progressive, we could be thinking theologically and religiously and spiritually, but we could also be thinking politically and culturally and psychologically, right? We think we know what we mean when we say we're conservative or traditional or liberal, but we have no clue what that means to other people in their lives. So this week I listened to a podcast that was helpful last week. The Bible for Normal People, if you haven't been listening to Peter N's podcast, The Bible for Normal People, you might like it. 
He interviews uh, Brian McLaren this summer, earlier in July, and in this episode, he talks to McLaren about faith stages that we all move through. McLaren, listen, tips his hat to all the faith stage theorists, and this isn't something a whole lot of us are interested in, but down through the, the last, uh, at least the last century or so, people have been studying this topic, and it so happens that there are predictable patterns. We do move through stages as we grow spiritually and theologically. We do move. McLaren has four stages, and he takes into consideration all of these other people who've done the work before him, if I gave you the list of names, we will start yawning. But I would add a name. Our own Dr. Bailey Gillespie from our university also studied faith stage development. There's a thick book in my office if you want to borrow it. So it's interesting that McLaren's book, um, Faith After Doubt, released earlier this year, this is part of the topic of his book, The Faith Stages We Move Through. I also picked up another little book because there's an Adventist author in the last month doing the very same thing, Monty Celine. Some of you know this name. He's been doing research and writing for Adventist, the Adventist church for a few decades. It's a tiny, thin little book. But it turns out if you read Celine's little booklet, his stages sound pretty similar to McLaren's. And he gets there by listening to people talk about their lives. Tell me about your life with God and tell me about your life with people in the church and tell me how it's going. And then after listening to thousands of stories, Celine also comes up with four categories. So for the next 10 minutes, I'm gonna give you McLaren's four categories. Take some screenshots, take these pictures home because I wonder if with you and your family and your friends, there could be some conversation here, friends. We are all on a faith journey and we move through stages. For McLaren, his first stage is simplicity. Let's back up one and just look at the steps for a minute. Can we do that? Four stages. This is the language McLaren has chosen. If you overlap it with people who've done research and have big, thinky thoughts on this topic, it'll feel some similarities. First stage, simplicity. In the simplicity stage, here's some bullet points. Life is a war. God is the supreme lawgiver or a protector or a patriarch. My role, I am part of the right group. I am loyal to the group. I value loyalty to the group and obedience to authorities. I value being good too, really good. Obeying the rules, being good and clean and proper. The good news for stage one is that I can be forgiven and God can fix this. And faith for stage one people means that I agree to the beliefs that people in authority tell me to believe in. Whatever the Bible is, the pastor is saying on the weekend, that's what I'm going to believe in. This is a brief, very brief overview of stage one, right? Now I'm going to hold still for a minute because most children start here, but we don't stay here. <laughs> there, are beautiful, uh, there are beautiful gifts of stage one. There are some strengths here. Highly committed people live in stage one. Things are structured. People are willing to make sacrifices in stage one. That can be beautiful. Stage two, complexity. So a little bit of life happens, right? Life moves through people. In stage two, life is a game. God is a guide who helps me prosper. I am part of an effective team and I value being independent and achieving some goals and the good news in this faith stage is that there's help, help's available to me. In this, faith, in this stage, faith is a means to the desired ends, to an outcome, really. 
The prediction is that most churches in America live, most Christian churches are in stage one or stage two. I wanna let that settle. More of us, they think, in American evangelical Christianity are in stage one. All right, stage two. By the time you get to stage two, a little bit of life has happened, right? Like you've seen some things. Life has passed through us. We remember a time when the girls were little. Did I tell you this story long ago? There's a pet that's lost in the backyard. We're with a group of people at a Bible study. Before the parents can even catch up to the children out in a field, all of the children have huddled up in a circle and they're praying for a lost pet. And it is beautiful and a little frightening all at the same time. If the pet comes home, it was beautiful, right, church? And if the pet doesn't come home, we have to say some things to these children. We taught them to pray, and God will answer their prayer. So probably by the time you get to stage two, you've said a couple of prayers that God has not answered. Do you remember last week I mentioned Pastor Stewart? Um, Pastor Stewart used to tell us about a very memorable prayer moment in his life when his father told him he should claim all the Bible promises and pray for his stepmother so that she would not die. She was terminally ill. And so his stepfather asked him, did you claim all the promises and pray and, stu- and, and, and this is way your stepmom will not die? Did you do that? And he said, well, I think so. And his father told him, be more certain than that. And his stepmom dies four days later. This moves us from stage one to stage two. (laughs) Life moves through people. Now we have things to think about. Stage three, perplexity. Life is a joke. This will sound a little bit like the author of Ecclesiastes. Life is a joke. Life is meaningless. What are we doing here? This is either deception or a quest. God in this faith stage is a myth or a mystery. God's more complex now. I, I'm one of the honest and thoughtful ones. I value facing inconvenient truths and biases. Go ahead, let's get them out on the table. I wanna hear them. I wanna know what I'm dealing with now. Cause life's a joke anyway. Come on, just get it all out. The good news uh, is that I'm encouraged to ask questions and faith for me in this stage, faith is an obstacle to critical thinking. And this is why a lot of churches don't go past stage one and page two, stage one and stage two, because faith is an obstacle. If you you teach me to ask questions, if you let me into the conversation, if you tell me that it's not only the pastor up front with the Bible who gets to say things, faith could be an obstacle in this stage. There are an awful lot of us in the room today who have thought about these things a long time in your own personal journeys as life has moved through you. I think a lot of us are in this stage in the La Sierra family. And then stage four. Stage four is harmony. In stage four, according to McLaren, life is a mysterious gift and God is a loving presence. I seek to understand the common good and I value compassion and I value the common good. I care about the good for you like I would care about the good for me. In this fourth stage, the good news is that all of life is sacred and it belongs to God. And can you see how different we are now than in stage one? Where the good news is I could be forgiven and by the time we get to stage four, all of life is sacred and it belongs to God. 
And faith is humble and open to love by the time we get to the end. There are strengths and weaknesses in all of the stages. I'm going to put up the next image and see. Um, let's, can we go back to the four stages on the staircase together? When we look at all four of them lined up together, there are strengths and weaknesses. I named them for simplicity. For complexity, some of the strengths could be that we're eager to learn, and we're ideal, and we're action-oriented. Some of the concerns in stage two, uh, we're overly pragmatic and we're excessively confident about our answers and maybe a little naive still. Stage three, perplexity, where all of life is just a joke. Some of the strengths there could be that at least we're honest and curious, right? And that critical thinking is valued. But the concerns there could be that we are aloof or elitist, friends. Cynical maybe depressed. And that last stage, harmony. Some strengths could be that it integrates all of the previous stages. The strengths from everything else get integrated here, and that's good. There's a wider circle of compassion now, but the concern could be that we are still susceptible to all the other weaknesses that came before. It's not like we arrive at nirvana in this life, right? People move through life and life moves through people and this, it turns out, is how we grow and move and progress in our faith. Life happens to us. Turns out the church is the place where a core group of people keep turning up week after week after week. We look at one another and say, life moved through us this week. What does it mean? What does it mean for you and how did it change your faith? And did it move you to a place of harmony? How can we tell, friends, how can we tell if we're individuals in a church moving towards a place of harmony? What are you? Where are you in your life? And where do you think this church is, this church between two campuses? Where ought we be? Stage one answers are easy. You just trust the person in charge. I have the Bible in my hand today. That's stage one. It's easy. But we don't usually invite the growth that comes. Turns out growth happens to us by crisis. And if you go home and think about this this afternoon, and if you wanted to do your own exercise, go ahead and name a crisis or two in your life and reflect on that. What happened to your faith during that time of crisis? What happened to your faith since that time of crisis? We don't usually ask for growth. Growth usually comes to us in a time of crisis. So we get stuck sometimes. We settle sometimes. We get comfortable if we're in stage one or two. We hold still and we tell the pastor, close the Bible and stop asking difficult questions because we kind of like it where we are. My mother used to say that to me. Don't make it difficult, Chris. Come on. Come on. But late in her life, she said to me, why couldn't I have understood this complexity from the very beginning? We should be cautious not to move people too quickly through the stages. In a moment, we're gonna baptize some kids, right? They haven't had their 16th birthday yet. We should be cautious. We're not trying to get children to stage three and four overnight, friends. There, is, there are good things that happen in stage one and two. It turns out there is bad in the world. There is good in the world. There is right and wrong. We want our kids to know this. So we ought not try and rush everyone through, but we ought to be clear. 
There's so much we could say on this particular topic this morning. We ought to be clear about what we can be clear about. And I suppose this is what I care about the most. We've talked about it in a variety of ways over the years. Tell a better story. Sharpen your story, right? This is some of the language that we've used around here. Whatever we think we can say about God in our faith journey, be accurate. Because these girls were about to baptize Isabella Karina, Michaela, Michaela, when we baptize them, what we don't want to happen is in five and 10 years when life happens to them, they come back to us and say, time out, you taught us, but this is what we observe in the world. Time out, you taught us God is love, but Christians don't behave loving. What am I gonna do with that? Time out, you taught us the earth belongs to the Lord, but I don't know very many Christians who want to take care of it. Time out, God is not a man that sits in the sky. Children come back later and say this to us. Time out, what if God's coming to this earth to make this earth new and we taught children we're all going to be evacuated to some far away place? Say what we can say with clarity and with honesty, friends. We only get one clue in scripture about are we moving forward carefully or not? Is it working? Are we becoming more true, uh, more progressive? Are we, coming, are we moving towards harmony? Is it a clearer picture of God? We only get one clue really in scripture. Jesus says in that same chapter, I, this I command you that you will love one another. So when there is more love in a group, when there is more love in a home, when you sense more love and generosity and forgiveness in your own life, we're moving a little closer. That's a good sign. When you can see that you have a community that will share authority, that children are invited to answer questions and teenagers and young adults can answer these questions. When Pastor Jason has chapel on campus this year, he will not have all the answers. He will look to student leaders and invite them to answer the questions. That means we're not stage one and two. That's good. When you know that the embrace of your church is getting larger and larger, there is a kinship Sabbath school class at this church, not because we have all the answers to those complicated questions, but because this church knew whatever we do, our embrace has to be large. And it scares some of us, and it worries some of us. It was Jody Cahill in a business meeting in 2018, Dean Cahill from our campus, who took the microphone that night. We said, we're going to open a Sabbath school. How do we think and feel about this? And it was Jody who said, come on, people, we can absolutely do this. We can exercise more love than we can comprehend. And the fastest growing study group during pandemic has been your kinship Bible study group. People from Brazil and Germany and all over the world and all over the country found a home, not because we have all the answers, but because we heard Jesus say, you have to love. This is a movement towards harmony, friends. It's complicated. Do you remember when the flight the U.S. Airway Flight 1549 went down in the Hudson River in the D.C. area in Manhattan, Upper Manhattan. Do you remember that? A few years back. 120 people or so 
Engine failure just after they took off. The pilot did a loop, turned down, landed that thing in the Hudson River. The news told a story of the chaos on the plane as they realized it's coming down. And people are screaming, and people are crying, and people are trying to call home, and pre people start to pray. People are praying the Lord's Prayer. Some people forgot the words to the Lord's Prayer, but they knew the ending of the Lord's Prayer. And they ask God for forgiveness, and people are asking God to save me, save me, save me, as the plane was coming down. They needed to push the doors of that plane open, and they're at the front door trying to push the emergency door open, and they can't get it unstuck. And they're crying and praying and terrified, and it turns out there's one guy a few rows back who simply pulled the instruction manual out of the chair and started to read and shouted to the people, push out, push out, you'll be okay. Push out. And they were all okay. When I was a kid, I wanted to know Jesus so I could be saved and go to heaven. And when I got a little older, I wanted to know Jesus because other people knew more than me about Jesus. And now, I want to know Jesus because I want to know Jesus. That is the journey we are on. Amen.